It has been spoken of as one of the uh, best passages in all of Scripture when it comes to future. Um, Daniel is a prophet to the nation, and he currently lives in Babylon. And he has been there. He got to Babylon about the time he was 17 years old. And he has been faithful. He has been um, uh, uncompromising in his faith in the Lord. And because of that, the Lord has over and over again uh, given him a position of advising the nation of Israel, or excuse me, the nation of Babylon. And so in chapter 9 today, I want you to remember with me that we have currently uh, been through the first eight chapters and seen God show up in magnificent ways to reveal truth to an ungodly nation. And he's done that through the voice of Daniel. Daniel's interpreted dreams. He's uh, answered questions about messages that seemed somewhat kind of uh, archaic and misunderstandable. And then today what we find out is that Daniel is broken over this vision that he's received in chapter 8. It seems that according to the vision in chapter 8, that it's not going to end well for the nation of Israel. And so Daniel prays for understanding because he's not quite sure what it all means for him and for his people. And anytime you've heard something from the Lord or maybe had some bad circumstances in your life, I don't know about you, but I get to a point where I'm like, God, why are you allowing this thing to go on? And he wants to give you understanding. And Daniel was no different. He was a human being like the rest of us. He, he can only, we can only see from our perspective, right? Uh, consider it just like deer season right now. If you're down on the ground, sitting next to a tree, you can see a certain amount of ground. You can see a certain amount of area. But you get 10 feet up in the air, and all of a sudden your perspective changes. You can see further. You can hear things from further. And you have more of a, a, a view of what might be out there. But here's the deal. Most of the time, we, from our limited perspective, think that we know more than our God who has the perspective. He sees all things, everything. He's not on a 10-foot deer stand. He's above everything. And so when we read prophecy, we see it as God predicting the future and then telling someone about it. But really what it is, is it's him having seen it from the beginning to end. He's above time. He's seeing it all and giving us, in our limited perspective, he's using our words to describe something that really can't be described completely with our words, if that makes sense. So even in him giving us perfect vision and clarifying the nation's uh, goings-on, he's using our language, which limits him. He limits his message to using our language. And so today, as we begin chapter 9, Daniel It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So verse 1 and 2 is Daniel giving the timeline. In the last two visions he's given us, chapter 7 and 8, he specifies when the vision was given to him. Today's vision is given to him at the beginning of the reign of Darius, which we know from our study in Daniel that the nation of Babylon 
was uh, given to King Nebuchadnezzar. And as Nebuchadnezzar goes off the scene, his son, Nabonidus, has a son by the name of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar becomes the figurehead for the Babylonian kingdom. Well, the story goes, and many uh, children's Bibles even have this one in there, where Belshazzar is having a, a drunken party. Of course, it's not in the children's Bible that way. Uh, they kind of PG it up, or at least G-rate it up. But he's having a party because they are resting in their own protection as a nation. They're going, hey, we've arrived. Let's kick back. Let's have a couple brewskis, and let's bring in the dancing girls. And they, they don't, they're not sober and watching and being vigilant because when you're on the top, there's always somebody else that's trying to knock you off the top and get on the top themselves. That's the world we live in. So there they are partying, and there's a hand that appears and writes, many, many, tekel ufarsin, which means you've been weighed, found wanting, and your time's up. <laughs> you've been found wanting, and so God's going to take this kingdom from you. So in comes the Medes, and they come in, and they've been working on this for six months. And they come in on that night when the handwriting is on the wall and they overtake the kingdom. They take it when no one expects it. So they take over this kingdom and here is Darius the Mede. He's now the leader. So in that year, when he became the leader, Daniel gets this vision. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans were just the Babylonians. That was their ethnic group, if you will. So don't get confused. It's not a different group. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. So it says, um, Daniel, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the numbers of the years, specified the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here's this prophet to the nation, Daniel. And you know what he does in his spare time? He reads the Bible. He wants to understand the times that he lives in, and so he, doesn't, he, doesn't he knows what's going on in the world. He reads the headlines, too. But he's trying to get understanding about the days that he lives in, so he reads the other prophets, his peers. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He didn't have a whole lot of positive messages. But here Daniel is going, okay, We've been in Babylon. I was 17. Now I'm in my 80s or 90s. He's been there his whole life. Can you imagine an Israelite? Can you imagine if you were an American and you got taken captive and you've lived in Baghdad for 70 years? You go, God, why have you left me here to be destroyed? But Daniel's not doing that. He goes, okay, God's planted me here. What does he want me to do? And so Daniel is reading the scriptures. He's reading God's word. And as he's reading it, God gives him understanding. What we're going to find out is as God reveals some things to Daniel, Daniel is driven by his reading of the word. He's driven to prayer. And so in Jeremiah, I want to turn with you to Jeremiah chapter 25. Because the nation of Israel is in Babylon. It's in this foreign land, and they've been dispersed in a much a bunch of different countries, but Daniel is in Babylon, and the people of God were sent to Babylon as captives because Israel had been disobedient. For 490 years, they were to, every seven years, give a year of uh, rest to the land. If you were a farmer, you would farm the land for six years, and on the seventh year, you wouldn't plant 
You wouldn't harvest, you just let the ground lie fallow. And in doing that, it was not only good for the land, but it gave a Sabbath rest to the people. And so if they would do that, that was an obedience to the law. But here's the deal. Even though God gave them a pass every seven years, they didn't take it. Can you imagine if your boss said, hey, every seven years, don't come in. We'll keep paying you, but you don't have to come into work. How many of you would take it? Right? They didn't take it. And I believe that if our bosses said, you got to work six straight days a week, and on the seventh day, you need to take it off, many of us would take it off, but we would work twice as hard on that seventh day at home, and then we'd go back to work exhausted. Think about our weekends, my weekends. I go back to work more exhausted. I go back to work to rest, you know, most of the time, because I, I don't know how to rest. We're in a success-driven society. But God doesn't look on us as, as to what we can produce he looks on us as whose we are. Our identity should be in whose we are, not what we produce. But that's hard, right? So the Israelites were no different. So they, they didn't rest every seven years. And so God said, that's fine. I'll make you rest. He said, I'm going to exact those 70 years you owe me of rest. I'm going to send you out of the land, and I'm going to make you rest for 70 years. You won't be able to produce anything here. I'll give the land rest, and I'll give you rest. So in chapter 25 of Dan, or excuse me, Jeremiah, it says there in verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of the king Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. Red flag number one, they did not listen. Verse four, the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened to, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent, now every one of his evil and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to an anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and I will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be desolate and in astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So this is God's promise to them. This is not something we would put in our own Bible promise books. God promises to punish us when we're disobedient because he's a good father. 
So he does this, but he also gives us this word in Jeremiah so that when they're in the land and they're hungry for a word from the Lord, they can go back and read this. Daniel does that, and he goes, hey, I was taken captive when I was about 17. That means the years are coming close to when God promised to take us back. So if he's promised to punish us, and he's promised us 70 years, God is faithful. So we're going to go back. And that seems like it's getting close. So what can I do to prepare? So in Jeremiah 29, many of you will know from Bible bookstores and things that people hang on the wall, God has made a promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Um, he, he says, I, I, uh, uh, verse 11, I'll just read it. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, we quote that, but we don't know the context, many of us, of what he's saying that. Because in Jeremiah chapter 29, in verse 10, excuse me, we'll start in verse 5, he says, speaking of this captivity time, he says, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. In other words, continue living as if you were in the homeland. Continue to multiply. Don't give up. Keep going. Be fruitful and multiply, which was the command from Genesis. But then he says, Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And in some of your translations, it will say, in its peace, you will prosper. You need that, the peace of that land in order to prosper. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, but I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. My desire is not to take you to captivity and leave you there desolate, but my plan is to bring you back and make you fruitful again. So live as you're called today. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So we could kind of relate to this, right? Our home is truly in heaven, and we've been left here. Seemingly, sometimes it feels like we're as captives to the daily grind or whatever you might see it to be. God's message to us is continue to be fruitful and multiply. Live as you're called. Live where you are so that I will gather you from all nations into the culmination of the kingdom of God. But to this, it was to the nation of Israel. But I believe there's a further truth that we, as Christians, living as pilgrims in this world, God's going to gather us together at the end of time, or at the times of the end, 
and he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. So that, this is the message that Daniel is reading in the book of Jeremiah. He's reading this, and he's inspired. And he says there, he understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word that the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So as a result of this, next slide, Daniel intercedes, he prays. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, he continues. It says there, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He's not doing this because he has to. His outward appearance, his putting on burlap sack, and his tossing ashes on his head was a sign of his brokenness. That's what it means. He was so grieved inwardly, he wanted to show that outwardly. Not just to be seen, but because he was grievous. He fasted. He didn't eat. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments. Notice his confession in verse 5. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face. Some of your translations might say confusion of face. He's, he's contrasting. He says, we deserve to be judged by you in righteousness. We deserve shame. We deserve punishment. But you are righteous and good and perfect. He says, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of all Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. See, he owns it. He doesn't pray and confess other people's sins. He says, we have, as a nation have sinned against you, God, and I'm confessing this to you. You're righteous in your judgment. You're righteous to send us off to captivity. But despite all that, would you hear our prayers? Would you honor your promise to bring us back? He says in verse 8, O Lord, to us belong shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And that's how God shows his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinning against him, that's when Christ died to forgive us. But he didn't do that when we deserved it. I think some of us kind of forget that. You know, Jesus died for me and I deserved it. No, none of us did. We were rebellious. We were disobedient. We sinned against God. We sinned against the conscience he gave us. When children are small and they do something wrong, what do they do? They hide. Our daughter will find a corner or climb under the table when she knows she's done something wrong. 
But something happens over time. Little by little, we sin and we disobey and we sin and we disobey. And next thing you know, we don't, we don't show shame anymore. We don't blush when we see something we shouldn't watch on TV because we become kind of dull to sin. God's given us a conscience that when we do something when we're young, causes us to go, ooh, and we're embarrassed. But when we get older, if we continue in sin, we no longer are touched by that conscience because we've seared it, like placing your hand on a hot stove. You burn your hand, and you pick it up, and it heals, and then you burn your hand, and then you pick it up, and it heals. You do that enough times, you can't feel anything through your hands anymore. My dad's worked on cars for years, and he still does because mine break, and so I'm like, Dad, help. He doesn't do it anymore as a profession, but he did for like 25 years, and uh, his hands are just rough and callous, and they've softened a little bit, but he still can't feel with them, because if you've ever turned a wrench, you've smashed your hand. If you've ever done anything with a hot engine, changed oil, it, it just, you burn your hands. We, as sinners, we sear our conscience through living in sin ourselves and through being around it and surrounded by it. And so we become used to it. So Daniel is praying a prayer, a priestly prayer, on behalf of the nation, but he includes himself as a sinner himself. There's one, this is one of the people in the Bible, you don't see any sin recorded by him, but here he confesses sin on his behalf and on the half of the nation. So I, I think it's interesting, um, J. Vernon McGee said that when he teaches, he always says, if you can find somebody that lived by the Ten Commandments and never sinned, uh, tell me about it. Somebody that made it to heaven on their own. And he said a graduate of UCLA came up to him one day and said, what about Daniel? There's no evidence of him ever sinning in Scripture. And so uh, he actually took him to this passage, and he goes, yeah, but what about Daniel confessing his sin? If he never did sin, but he confessed sin like he did, then he lied and he sinned. So he wasn't even without sin. I thought that was interesting. It's like, oh, that's a good point. So Daniel is praying this prayer, and I, he doesn't exclude himself from fault. I think sometimes as Americans, we can very easily go, well, that's not my president. You know, whichever side you're on, and go, hey, he's condoning that thing, but I don't, you know. But we get what we are as a nation, as our leaders. Um, we deserve shame and judgment. Even if you don't now, at one point you did. Yet God is a promise keeper. He's merciful. He's forgiving. And we don't deserve a bit of it. Despite our failure, he says, Lord, please show mercy. Turn your anger and your fury away from, he's going to say, Jerusalem. Cause your favor to once again shine on your sanctuary. So he says, O oh Lord, shame belongs to us. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confined, confirmed his words, which he spoke against us 
and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. So he's calling out, he's confessing, and he's praying for repentance. That's what it means to repent, to turn from the way I'm walking and to walk the other direction, to admit that God is right and I'm wrong and to turn around. Have you ever noticed that one of the hardest things to do is to admit you're wrong? Not just to say, I'm sorry and not mean it. That's easy. But to admit you're wrong so much so that you want to change and then take steps to change. It's hard. Pride is a very strong thing. But this is what Daniel is praying for. He's confessing sin, saying, I'm wrong. And he's saying, Lord, help us turn around. Because apart from the grace of God, nobody can turn from their sins. We cannot save ourselves. Before Jesus, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. Dead men can't stand up. They're stuck. They're where they are. They're rotting. That's what we were before Jesus came in and gave us a new life, to be born again. And so he says there in verse 14, Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. He's righteous. What did he give the nation of Israel? When he sent them to the and in the nation of Babylon as captives, he gave them what they wanted. They were to utterly wipe out all other nations. They were to tear down the asterisks and the, the idols and the, the, all of the, the foreign gods. They were to wipe them out of their land. And they didn't. They disobeyed. And because of that, they started worshiping these false idols and gods. They started to believe that they were actually the gods that saved them. And so God being righteous, gave them what they wanted. He sent them to the land, the nation known for idol worship. He sent them to Babylon, the center of idol worship. He said, you want idols? Here they are. Go be with them because you're not going to be with me. And what they found when they were in that nation is that they had a pretty good God. They had one that they didn't have to do all this stuff for, that their God would be the one to deliver them. He would be the one to provide their food. He would be the one to give them a place to live. He would be the one to make them fruitful and give them rain. He wouldn't use them as slaves. So when they went off to this land of idols, they became slaves to that nation. And so God's getting ready to deliver them back. Verse 15, And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned we have done wickedly. So this confession is just, again, a confession that we deserve everything that we've gotten. We deserve it. And he even remembers back to how they became a nation in the first place. They were birthed out of slavery. The, the Egyptians made them their slaves for 400 and something years. And so when God delivered them out, he took them and he baptized them in the Red Sea. He delivered them literally through a sea, a death, if you will. 
because they were standing there at the Red Sea. We were watching this cartoon yesterday called Moses. And there they are, the pillar of cloud by night, or excuse me, by day, the pillar of light by night. They ran from Egypt, got all the way to the Red Sea, and they're stuck. There's no one to deliver them because the Egyptians were on their tail. And so what God did is he put this pillar of light between them and their enemies, and they were hemmed in. The Egyptians go, hey, look at them. They're stuck. They can't get anywhere. They're never going to be able to flee from us. Let's destroy them. And so God told Moses, raise up your staff and see the deliverance of the Lord. He raised up his staff, and God parted the Red Sea, and they passed through the waters by faith. They trusted God. Now, here's the deal. The difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites, the Israelites went in there trusting God. The Egyptians went in there defying God. And as soon as the last Israelite went up on the other side, and the Egyptians were down in the bottom, God said, okay, lower your staff. And all the sea destroyed the Egyptian army. He delivered them not only through the Red Sea, but he destroyed their enemies. But when they're disobedient, he allows their enemies to conquer them. And so God is able to humble the prideful. And he wants to do that for us. He wants to humble us, but he also, in our obedience, he'll defeat our enemies for us. That's what it says in the book of James. James, um, he says, um, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time. So, back here, he says, he remembers what God has done in delivering them from Egypt in the past. And he once again confesses his sin and the sin of the nation. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. He says, your holy mountain, because of our sins, And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. People would look up at the the nation of Israel. They'd look at Jerusalem, where God chose to make his name known. And they would look at it and go, so much for their God, he couldn't even keep them there. And Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. The walls that were around the city had been torn down. It was just a desolate place. Nobody wanted to go there. It was a byword. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, and this city which is called by your name, For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. He's already said that we don't have any. He says, but we lift up our supplications because of your great mercies. What's another word for mercy? Compassion. Compassion. Because of your compassion, Lord, would you again deliver us? Would you reestablish this city for your glory's sake? Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. 
Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Whose reputation is at stake here? Not the Israelites, not the Babylonians, not the Medes, not the Persians. Uh, It's the Lord, his reputation. And his reputation is one of always being faithful. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny his name. He cannot deny his character. And so he is able to forgive. He's able to hear and act. So verse 20 says, so did I hit all my points there? He's pleading. So the next slide, Jesse. Seemingly, as he's praying, and if you read this prayer, I think it's interesting, this prayer that he gives, if you read it, and you time it, it's about three minutes long. Well, interestingly enough, if you read Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, it's about three minutes. I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. We want to make it this long, drawn-out, flowery words. But, and, and you might read Daniel's prayer and go, wow, that guy can pray. But he was simple. He prayed specifically about the things that were on his heart. And it seems that in verse 20, while I was speaking, he says, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. This will be about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So this man shows up by the name of Gabriel. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is the first mention of Gabriel apart from the last chapter. So Gabriel is first mentioned in the book of Daniel. But Gabriel is this messenger from the Lord. I believe he's an angel. He reached me at the time of the evening offering. And look at this, verse 22. He informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, O Daniel, he knows his name. Interesting. An angel that knows the name of Daniel. How cool is that? O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your prayer, your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So he's come to give him understanding of what he's about to see. Daniel has received understanding in the past, and it doesn't really go into the detail other than the Lord gives him understanding. But in this case, he's praying, and while he's praying, here comes an angel. He arrives at the time that he finishes praying. I wonder if his eyes were closed, and he showed up right at the beginning, and then when he opened his eyes, he's like, oh my goodness. You know, here's this messenger from the Lord. And so he says, at the beginning of your supplications, that's when the command went out from the throne of God. At the beginning. God already knows what we need before we ask. But he still wants us to ask. You have not because you ask not is what James writes. And you don't receive because sometimes we ask for the wrong thing. But God is faithful to give us what we need when we need it. His timing is perfect. 
At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Even that message from an angel of God, how cool would that be? Angel shows up. That's, don't get me wrong. That's pretty cool. But then the message that the angel comes to give you is, number one, you're greatly loved. Now, no doubt Daniel knew this, but sometimes isn't, isn't it nice to hear that? Greatly beloved. You're loved. And, and I believe that many times we don't hear that enough. Not that I love you, but did you know that God loves you? It sounds cheesy, but I think people need to hear that. God's not angry at you. He loves you. He he demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross. Not to be an offense, but to be a payment that turns away the wrath of God that you deserve. God sent his son. How many of you that have children would send your son or your daughter to die for somebody else? I don't think any of us would not knowingly anyway. But God demonstrates his love. If there's ever anyone that you come across, maybe you yourself, that doubts the love of God, consider that God sent his son to die. Not just to tell us something, but to die in our place, to throw himself down on the grenade of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to experience God's wrath. How cool is that? How amazing is that kind of love? We love, but we don't love like that. Only God can love like that. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So this is where it gets deep. Uh, Verse 24. So I put up, sorry. So I put up a uh, picture on the screen because this is the prophecy. We've read this whole chapter, and there's verse 24 through 27 is actually the message. The message is this. God's going to reveal a long-term timeline to Daniel. And that timeline includes 70 weeks. So he says there in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined. Now the word literally translated is not actually weeks. It's 77s. Think about it. A week is seven days long. So when he says week, it's a unit of measurement. 77s. Now, I know not everybody in here loves math, but I'm a numbers guy. I'm an engineer by trade. So seven times seven is 49. And then add the zero because it's 70 times seven. Interestingly enough, that's how often we're supposed to forgive, right? (laughs) Should I forgive my enemy seven times? How about 70 times seven? That's the Lord's patience. So here we have 70 weeks, translated 77s, which is 490 years. Interestingly enough, that was the amount of years that God gave them to finally practice the Sabbath, and they never did. Then he sent them to captivity. So this is fresh on his mind, all these numbers. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And these are the things that are determined to happen during the 70 weeks. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, which simply means 
to fulfill all prophecy, that it would no longer be anything in the Old or New Testament unfulfilled, and then to anoint the most holy. And so he says all of these things will happen in these 70 weeks, 490 years. Verse 25, know therefore and understand. He keeps saying this, know and understand. God doesn't just want us to know his words. He wants us to understand them. And he's able to give us understanding. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, so that's the beginning of the time period, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven weeks is this section here. Seven weeks would be the seven sevens, which would be 49 years. And then he says there's 62 weeks. And I can't do that one in my head, but it's 434 years. So from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem all the way up to the coming of Messiah would be 69 weeks. Now, I wrote it down up here, so I have to go look. But that is actually, I did the math here, 173,880 days. Now, you, if you've got a calculator out, which I hope you don't, but if you do, essentially that doesn't make sense on our timeline because how many days do we have in a year? 365. Really, it's 364 and a quarter. That's why we got leap year. But then... According to the calendar at this period, when this prophecy is given, it's 360 days. So if you do the math, 360 day years, it becomes 69 weeks, which is 483 years. So interesting, in Nehemiah chapter 2, in my Bible it's page 360. I don't know about you guys. I didn't get to mark the page, so I remember the number. Page 360. Oh, sorry. Nehemiah chapter 2. Wouldn't it be better if all Bibles had the same exact page numbers? I mean, come on. Nehemiah in chapter 2 says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan. That's not the, toy, that's not the truck. It's the month of Nisan. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, because you're not supposed to be sad in front of the king. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. So then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. It's like he just prayed real quick, Lord, give me favor with this king. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send to me, excuse me, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. 
So the, the long and the short of it is that Artaxerxes gives the command to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Not only that, but he also gives him provision financially to rebuild the city. This is unheard of in nations where you're a captive of that nation. And then the king says, hey, go back and build it. And here's a bunch of money to do it. It doesn't happen. Any kingdom that gets soaked into another kingdom, essentially it gets absorbed and it's never heard of again. It becomes assimilated into that culture. It's never revived. So God, by his hand, sends them back to the land, sends them back to build it. What we find out in Nehemiah chapter 6 is they built the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. That's how quickly it happened. Now, they did it in troublesome times because while they were doing it, all the nations around them did not want it rebuilt. And so they sent word back to the king. Hey, do you know they're trying to overthrow your kingdom? That's why they're building the city back. And so there's all this opposition, which fulfills what Daniel hears here in verse 25. Chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore, he says, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built and the wall even in troublesome time. And we see that fulfilled in Nehemiah 6, verse 15 and 16. So, interesting, because to the exact amount of days, what was that? A hundred and... 73,880 days. To the day exactly, from the time that the command is given for Jerusalem to be rebuilt until Jesus rides in, on a white, uh, on a white, on a, the, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And I've walked the street where it happened. He comes down sitting on the colt, a foal of a donkey, which was symbolic in that day that a king was coming in under a banner of peace. So Jesus, the exact day that he jumped on that thing and they cried out, Hosanna in the highest, Lord save now. 173,000 880 days. So every time Jesus in his ministry said, it's not yet my time, it's not yet my time, it was because he was waiting till the exact day that Daniel had heard in his vision when the Messiah would enter in and for the first time allow himself to be called out to be the king, the prince, the Messiah, the Mashiach. And so fulfilling Daniel's prophecy here, 69 weeks. So here's where it gets confusing to me. Maybe some of you guys can help me with this. Because it's 70 weeks, right? So you'd think, okay, seven sevens. There's one week left in 69 weeks. It's 70 weeks, there's one week left. All of this has already taken place. So shouldn't it be seven years later? And then the fulfillment of the millennial reign? Shouldn't it be? Well, there's this unspoken for part of the prophecy, and to me it's a mystery. Because from this point, all the way to the last seven years, is this time of the Gentiles. It's this time where you and I, 
As non-Jewish, I'm assuming most of us are not Israelites by birth, have this opportunity to receive what was bought when Messiah was cut off. The forgiveness of sins, the remission, the removal of guilt by the blood of the Lamb. We all have this opportunity for salvation. So he says there in verse 26, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off for the sins of the world. He came to deal with sin. So after 62 weeks, the 62 weeks, Messiah came in, and within a short amount of time, he was crucified, but not for himself. He was cut off, meaning he did not receive the kingdom that he deserved. And then it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, a cleansing, a washing, a purge. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, <clears throat> excuse me, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So there's this last week called the tribulation period. And in that tribulation period, I believe, because I'm a pre-tribulational guy, if you're into that, Jesus will come back and he will meet us in the clouds. We will be raptured as the church. And then there will begin the seven-year period spoken of here. And it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Many believe that this actually took place in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. So, <laughs> we're kind of out of time. <laughs> but what I want to point out in this timeline is that in the last seven years in the tribulation period, the nation of Israel will make a, a covenant, they'll make an agreement with Antichrist. He will come in as this political and national savior, and they will accept him as their Messiah until the middle of the point of the seven weeks, three and a half years in, he will take down offering, he'll shut down the offerings, the temple will be desecrated, he'll set up himself in the temple, and he will pro proclaim to be God. And at that point, their eyes will be opened, they'll see him as anti-Christ, anti-salvation, and they'll see that he's not the Messiah, and then unleashed hell will happen on earth. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, and he will be in control, in power, until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So, at the end of that, Jesus will show up again, and there will be a war to end all wars. Not World War I, like it was called, but in the Valley of Armageddon, Jesus will be confronted by all the armies of the nations. And with a word, he will conquer them all, and he will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. 
And for a thousand years, he will rule in righteousness. So we see a lot of that in the book of Revelation. But my voice is gone. And that's all I got for this morning. So that said, with this vision, it's not just to know it. It's to understand and apply this wisdom. Knowledge that's not applied is just data. But knowledge, vision that God gives us to understand that we are living in the end times. We're living in a time where things are happening in an unprecedented rate. And I believe that at any moment, Jesus could be ready to take us back and to start this period of tribulation. So let me ask you, I'm sure you've heard this before. Are you living for that kingdom? Are you living for eternity like it's at our doorstep? Are you living in a way that proclaims that you actually trust this king? Because this king, this authority, this rulership will last for eternity. Daniel is living in a day and age where everything was uncertain. But he knew that at any moment they were going to be taken back to the land. So in order to prepare, he was reading God's word. He was in prayer saying, Lord, help me understand. And he was preparing to go back to the promised land. God is preparing you and I for this eternal kingdom that for some reason he allows us to be part of ruling and reigning with Christ. Will you be prepared to rule and reign in righteousness with Christ? Or will, or will you be utterly confused when all this takes place? God tells us this because he wants us to know ahead of time what's coming. And the day and age that we live in is not unlike the day and age that Daniel lived in. So let's get ready because he's coming back. Let's live with expectancy. So we're going to close with a song. Uh, Lord willing, my wife's going to sing it. You don't want this? I can make a joyful noise, but it may not be joyful to you. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for prophecy. We thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his prayer that gives us insight into how we should be praying. Thank you for his willingness to accept the guilt and the shame that he deserved. Thank you for his trust in your promises. Thank you for his example to us of looking to your word as an authority, as a looking glass to give him vision and wisdom to live in the days that he lived in. Lord, may we be like Daniel. May we look to your word. May we be inspired as we don't understand it to ask you for understanding. And would you give to us liberally the wisdom that we need to live in a way that brings glory and honor to you. Lord, we don't know when you're coming back. No man knows the day or the hour. Now, Jesus said that. But we do want to be ready. And so, Father, prepare us like a bride preparing for her wedding day. Help us to be chaste and sober and purify us, Lord. And help us as we live in a day and age where there's more information going around than any other, 
Help us to know the information that will last for eternity. And help us to share the gospel, the truth, the saving truth with those around us. Lord, I want to take as many people with me as I can. So Father, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.